Now for our third uh, Medicine Box student presentation, James Morland, who's a third-year PhD student in English Literature at King's. Welcome, James. Thanks, Sam. Um, so I want to start today by looking at the double meaning of our theme of wonder. So to wonder about is a process of curiosity, whilst to wonder at invokes a feeling of complete amazement. And it's both this curiosity and amazement that are very well suited to the process of both writing and reading poetry. To turn to Percy Shelley's defense of poetry in 1821, poetry lifts the veil from the hidden beauty of the world and makes familiar objects be as if they were not familiar. This is true for both writer and reader. Poetry gives a certain spaciousness for reflection. Its rhythms and carefully chosen syllables and metrical systems weave to create a renewed emotional and interaction, inter intellectual interaction with the world around us. So part of my PhD research focuses on, focuses on how medical professionals in the 18th century used poetry to explain both the scientific workings of the body and in turn questioned the unexplainable quality of life found in being human. In essence, I spend much of my time looking at doctors wondering about wonder, how to define it, how to place it within their scientific descriptions, how to place an atomistic science in their contemporary religious context, and how to combine the logical descriptions of the scientific body with a wonder-filled poetic depiction of its workings. So when I mention 18th century doctor poets, especially as a student at King's College London, thoughts probably initially turn to John Keats, as they have done throughout many conversations this weekend. Um, though I want us to consider the importance of practicing doctors who wrote poetry earlier in the 18th century and what they can tell us about the importance and power of poetry. So to do this, we can turn to the ancient Greek aphorism that appears in much of these poets' thinking and writing, know thyself. To these doctors, to know oneself is to understand the intricate details of the inner scientific workings of the body how one thing causes another, how the nerves connect, and how the atoms bind. But as poets, they find to know oneself in such a mechanical way proves to be a disservice to the experience of being yourself and of being alive. For these doctors, poetry is a means to question the non-scientific, non-mechanical element that gives the spark of life. It allows them to bring the unfamiliar to the foreground of their scientific and medical familiar. So let's turn to perhaps the most explicit example of this in my research, John Arbuthnot, a Scottish doctor who in 1734, a year before his death, published a poem entitled, Know Yourself. He starts his poem in what could be best described as a poetic panic, forcing a deluge of 16 existential questions on his reader. What am I? How produced and for what end? Whence drew I being? To what period tend? Am I the abandoned orphan of blind chance, dropped by wild atoms in disordered dance? Or from an endless chain of causes wrought, and of unthinking substance, 
born with thought. Am I but what I seem, mere flesh and blood, a branching channel with a mazy flood? Here, Arbuthnot turns to an atomistic description of the body to frame his questioning of himself. His materialist vision of the body and the self is the main facet of my overarching research, looking at how 18th century poets reacted to and against a rise in popularity of a recently translated first century BC poem, Lucretius's Dorarum Natura. In the poem, Lucretius sets out a purely atomistic system of the universe and of the body, ultimately arguing that the gods, if they exist at all, had no influence on life or humans or their bodies, as everything is made from pure atomistic chance. For the likes of our Arbuthnot, the idea of the body being the product of atomistic chance isn't enough to explain the experience of being human, not least because it removes any divine influence or guidance. To think of himself as mere flesh and blood, an abandoned orphan of blind chance, leaves him as a mere atomistic machine and the product of an endless chain of causes, the very reason for his existential panic. But it's from these atomistic beginnings of Lucretius's poem that Arbuthnot and other doctor poets find a means of expressing the wonder of life. From the microcosmic atoms, these poets see the macrocosmic whole system of the universe, and how a poetic description of the imperceptibly small can make the reader consider the largest of concerns. So Arbuthnot goes to describe the circulation of blood through the body. The purple stream that through my vessels glides, dull and unconscious flows like common tides. He turns to imagery of nature to describe the workings of the body, framing the depiction of the flow of blood through the veins with a natural ebb and flow of a river, enhancing these connections with his rhyme of glides of blood and the tides of the stream. And turning to a later doctor poet, John Armstrong, and his popular 1744 poem, The Art of Preserving Health, we see a very similar poetic exploration of the body and life in book one. If droughty regions parch the skin and lungs and bake the thickening blood, deep in the wavy forest choose your seat, where fuming trees refresh the thirsty air and wake the fountains from their secret beds, and into lakes dilate the running stream. So just as in Arbuthnot's poem, Armstrong turns to the system of nature when thinking of the human body. For Armstrong, the body is a micro-ecosystem, and in understanding it, we understand the wider system of nature and our place within it. And it's later in the poem that he turns to describing life, and returns back to this initial description of the ecosystem. The blood, the fountain whence the spirits flow, the generous stream that waters every part, and motion, vigor, and warm life conveys to every particle that moves or lives. His words and meter are carefully chosen. The fountain and generous stream recall the fountain from their secret beds and the running stream from the forest in book one. And the caesura of commas in the lines slows the reading um, over the motion, vigor, and warm life 
mimicking the ebb and flow of the stream, giving life to each part of the body, and allowing the reader a kind of metrical space to make the parallel between this natural system and human life. So returning to the chain of causes we found in Arbuthnot's poem, Armstrong similarly turns to the atomistic system of the body, showing that the essence of life is in a constant cycle of growth and destruction. But what the vital force of plastic fluids that hourly batters down, that very force those plastic particles rebuild, so mutable the state of man. It is in this constant cycle of growth, destruction, and rebuilding of the organic system that's the basis of life in the human body for Armstrong. Yet near the end of book two, Armstrong infuses a distinct sense of wonder and vitality into this system. Life glows meantime amid the grinding force of viscous fluids and elastic tubes. Whilst the general state of man is a system of fluids and tubes, life is something more. Within this bodily cycle of generation and regeneration of atoms, life glows. For both of these doctors and others such as Samuel Garth, who turned to poetry to express his support for the new dispensary movement for the poor, Poetry gives them a discourse from which to infuse their medical knowledge of the body with a philosophical and at times political questioning. The familiar object of the human body with its intricate working system becomes unfamiliar, infused with a sense of something almost indescribable, glowing life. So return to Shelley. He writes in his philosophical work on life, that the mist of familiarity obscures from us the wonder of our being. And for these doctor poets, it's poetry that lifts this mist. And I think we can learn much from these poets. It's in poetry that we have the space to understand what we know and take as standard and as familiar, and in turn question the wonder that constantly lies hidden beneath it. These poets working before our modern-day boundaries between the disciplines of medicine and poetry use both equally in their practices as doctor and as poet. They lead us to question how we can use poetry to refine the sense of awe of the wonder of life in medical and scientific discourse, how, on the converse side, the medical world and its knowledge of the body can inform poetic personal expression of self and how both of them, coming together, can lift the veil on a hidden beauty and a hidden sense of wonder.